Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to talk about the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to people who create these games. And this is my favorite kind of episode, ladies and gentlemen, because it combines all three. Joining me today is one of my favorite guests on this show, bar none, a man who has written one of my favorite tabletop games, the only tabletop game, I might add, that I tried to teach my dad recently. A game that I absolutely adore. Of course, we're talking Gaslands. And if we are talking Gaslands, of course, we are talking Mike Hutchinson. Welcome back to Cast Ice to talk about his new game, a rank and flank miniature agnostic fantasy game called Hobgoblin. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hello there, Brad. Uh, you're an absolute cutie. Uh, I'm pretty sure you give that same intro to all your guests, uh, but I love you for it. <laughs> you know I don't, but my God. I mean, you have come on the show many times in the past. Obviously, we've talked Gaslands a number of times. Um, we've talked some of your other games as well. I believe we even talked about Blaster at one point. But mm. man, Hobgoblin is a game that we have talked about off-air and on-air many times over the years because for just pulling back i mean first of all i'm sorry i have to bring up one thing before we even get into hobgoblin yeah it's not every day i have a guest on this show whose game appeared on south park that's got to oh, feel pretty good crumbs. yeah 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 <laughs> lest we forget what a yeah what a bizarre and honor uh yeah crazy did you have any idea that was going to happen until it appeared? No, no, no. It was just like that. That the, the I guess it was the morning, the, the UK morning, like shortly after it had just aired in the states, and everyone was sending me screenshots going, "What? What? Did you did you get paid for this? Like what? No, <laughs> they did. They, they didn't let me know. It's amazing. That is fantastic. Well, way back when Gaslands, before it was the beautiful hardback book put out by Osprey Games, it mm. was a humble Osprey blue book. And back even before that came out, you were on the show. And when you were on that this show at that point, you were talking about another game that you were working on first. That game has finally come to fruition. Of course, we are talking about Hobgoblin. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process of how... I mean, this has been an odyssey for you. You've put out many games and expansive expansions to the games you put out in recent years, but you've always had this churning around in the back of your mind. It's got to feel good that this is finally coming out. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I guess like you, you got to rewind all the way back to like 2013, 2014, where, um, like this is before I had kids. Uh, I had a regular Saturday, like I call it a morning gaming group, but really we, we played most of the day and we would mm -hmm. play a lot of big battle games, a lot of fancy battle games of like 10, 12,000 points aside, you know, really wide tables, big, big, big battles that would go on for hours. And I loved playing big 
fantasy games with multiple players. I like head-to-head play, but like I've always been kind of a multiplayer gamer, which you know, maybe shows in in the way that Gaslands has kind mm-hmm. of written from the ground up to be not just a two-player game. Um, but I was, you know, always frustrated by the sort of length of time it took to play really mess- massive battles because the reason we were there is that we'd all spent all this time, you know, assembling our forces and painting our armies and we just wanted like, you know, just a colossal battle to unfold. Um, and so I guess at that point, I'd been spending a lot of time, this is like right back at sort of getting back into tabletop games design. I'd done a lot as a kid, which we maybe talked about the first time I was on. And then I had a gap as everyone does. And then I started getting into, I guess, scenario design and campaign design. And that very naturally led on to taking this sort of frustration with um, the experience that I wanted from a big war game mixed with my, like, I have a really deep, um, love of uh, advanced wars uh, on the on the Game Boy, mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of wanted this. I wanted this really fast experience of playing a huge game, but that it was a bit more zoomed out, and I didn't have to go into the details of everything. And that maybe the units were a little bit more like you know rock paper scissors matched up, and you know they were st- strong or weak against particular other kinds of units, which is sort of the way that advanced wars. Um, generalizes its troop types uh and so i got just I just got working on this on this thing um this 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 fantasy battle game thinking oh yeah this will be it and then the end times came along and then fantasy battle collapsed and i was like this is it this is my moment like i've got the game that can be the thing of course you know 1200 other amateur game designers were also thinking the same thing mm-hmm. um, so I started shopping Hobgoblin around and I showed it to a few different people. And one of the people was Osprey, one of the people was Gripping Beast. I even took a, a set all the way up to their uh, to their studio in Nottingham and got to play it with them. And you know they were very polite and said no, but said no nicely. Um, and Osprey was very polite and said no nicely. And I was like, well, I've got a bunch of other games as well. Um, here's the link to my website. And uh, Phil um, at Osprey pulled out the Gaslands one, I was like, I have been thinking about doing something like this, so let's do something like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess after that, I had a game in Hobgoblin, I had a game that I was really kind of pleased with, but I knew it was going to be like another year, 18 months of playtesting before it was properly good. But it went on the back burner. Gaslands mm-hmm. happened, Billion Sons, um, other projects got in the way. And then during lockdown, um, I picked it up again, started messing around with it for myself. And just kind of fell back in love with it and was like, actually, there's a there's a game here that I truly still want to play. Like the thing that I want from a fans from like a brutal fantasy battle game that can scale up really quick, that can scale up to really big armies without slowing itself down. Like it still don't have the thing that I need. So I'm still excited about this game and I want to make it happen. Well, I guess my question is having been through the Billion Suns experience, having been through multiple iterations of Gaslands and some of the other things you've been doing with Blaster, taking those experiences and then now with fresh eyes and you've taken off the rose colored glasses of history and you've actually cracked open Hobgoblin again. What were some of the things that you looked at when you looked at it again during lockdown and you fell in love with it again? Were there things that you said, "Mm, maybe I should change that? Or were you happy with what you had shipped up to Nottingham to to play for uh, Gripping Beast way back when? Yeah, it's a, that's a super good question. Um, 
I think like the shell of the game was still good uh, insofar as like there was a couple basic concepts like this is not revolutionary, but like units are just rectangles and you don't mess about with the rectangles. They're just there and they're, they're, they're sort of maneuver around. I'd liked the movement system. That was nice and simple and chunky. The combat system was was good. Like everything rolled 10 dice, regardless of how wounded they were or what kind of unit they were. And um, there was a table of to hit numbers, which basically maps you know, a heavy infantry against a light infantry needs a five or whatever. And that, although slightly old school and slightly chunky, like it condensed everything that I wanted. Like it was the hit, it was the, the the relative sort of strength and weakness. It was the relative armor. It was the, you know, it was the relative sort of formation and order of the troops. And like, I just liked the way that this table, although a little bit old school had kind of packed all of the density of the information just into a single lookup. But as I started playing it again, I kind of realized I don't, and, and you can see this coming through some of the rule of carnage discussions that we, that I did with my co-host Glenn about 18 months ago when I, I kind of reopened the design. He was asking me questions and challenging me on some of the game rules. And I realized that I still hadn't quite figured out exactly what the core principles of the game were that allowed me to kind of filter out the rules. And what I got to, was a realization that like this sort of this sort of like fast and brutal phrase came out as a descriptor and i realized that there was a that there was a set of rules in the game that were doing one of two things they were either adding additional dice rolls that weren't necessary mm. were absolutely necessary so for example like i put a saving throw in because i got a fair bit of feedback that people like saving throws and that's generally true people do like like I throw some dice and then before I put my wounds on, I have to throw some dice in the other direction. But if you take that away, you actually radically accelerate the game because there's not just less dice rolling, there's less handover points, there's less people. There's first places where it's like somebody else has to go, hey, you, you need to roll those dice and then you have to work them out. And the other thing was, um, and I, I'll have to go on a side tangent to explain like how this came back out. But the other thing that I wanted to get rid of was lots there were lots of nope moments left in the game. And I went back and one of my inspirations for Hobgoblin and kind of my one of my visuals for it is um, it's a love letter to those to those maps in 90s White Dwarf battle reports. In a way, like my imagining of the game is it's miniature agnostic to the point where it's like I have playtested this game with little uh, rectangles where I've cut out little triangles so that they look exactly like the maps, the units do in the maps in White Dwarf, 90s White Dwarf battle reports. Yes. Because um, I just love that sort of sweeping feel and that sort of like flipping through a battle report, not having to get into the details of it, but it's saying, you know, these orcs sort of charge up to the bridge and there's a, and there's a melee and the, you know, and the, the humans retreat. Like that sort of level of granularity is the sort of swiftness that I was going for. But in those re battle reports, what, one thing that I noticed was that there's an enormous amount of, Okay, this spell gets cast, it gets dispelled, so it doesn't happen. You know, these guys try and shoot, there's no hit, so nothing happens. Like, these guys try and charge, but the other ones retreat, so nothing happens. And every time that I found one of these moments in my game, it was because I just put something in that I just sort of, by default, by reflex, I'd put like, all right, so there's a, there's a, there's a mechanic in the game called fortune cards, which is like your hand of random events that you can play. You can get into a little bit of that. But where there's one that's like a card was... Um, 
a gust of wind. So like if I suffer some shooting damage, I can play that and negate the shooting damage. And I, I, I realized that at the heart of the game, it's not just about being fast, removing anything that's slowing the game down, but it's also about having things happen and never having sort of nothing happen, replacing moments of nothingness with moments of somethingness was my Gaslands design principle. And I was like, yes, that's the... So then, so then with that lens, then the answer to your question is I looked at it and went, oh goodness, there's all these things that just aren't doing that core principle. And then you get left with a hobgoblin, which is purely about, you know, how fast can you execute a massive sweeping battle line with loads of gory death? And then every time anything happens, like, yes, the game state moves forward. It's not just like, I try a thing, it doesn't work. I try a thing, you cancel it. I try a thing, you cancel it. I love that the quick start rules, and I know we've mentioned, you've mentioned several times now, the Rule of Carnage podcast. But the Rule of Carnage is my favorite rule in Gaslands. It is anytime <laughs> that there's a chance that something will go horribly wrong or not horribly wrong, always err on the side of horribly wrong because it makes for a better game. And it does, mm -hmm. for the record. The very first thing that the quick start rules for this game has before you even get into the what is this game is in hobgoblin if the rules are ever unclear pick whichever option results in the most doom of all concerned i love that you have taken um the old rule of carnage from gaslands and ported it over to hobgoblin it really does suit the game of course that wouldn't fit a billion sons but man does it fit this right that's right yeah that's right and it's absolutely like I'm trying to, I'm trying to create with the rules in Hobgoblin, like that there is an element to which a rank and flank game is always going to be, you know, a little bit tense and a little bit thinky, but I'm trying to keep all of that tense and thinkiness to, you know, the moment, the places that are interesting, like where am I moving my troops? Where am I choosing to cast my spells? Where am I choosing to play my fortune cards to, to sort of pinch the odds in one way or the other? but not, you know, a bunch of crunch in the like resolving of combat or the figuring out of, you know, specific kind of gnarly interactions between like, where is my general standing versus your wizard in this two, three block melee? And can I, you know, can I squeeze in this gap and can I close the door? And is that going to be a valid charge or not? Like trying to get rid of as much of that finagling as possible and just say like, you know, the, the rules are fairly clear and quite permissive um, and that leads I think to one of the slightly odd elements of this game which is that units even once they've charged into combat can still sort of shuffle around and get out of each other's way and sort of nudge themselves about which is a little bit little bit weird if you've played lots of sort of charge in and get locked in combat games mm -hmm. and it's it's less a reaction to like I don't like getting locked in combat games it's more just like that's part of keeping the rules as simple as possible, but allowing the game to sort of flow quite naturally. And for example, like when combat's resolved, like making sure that combats can happen immediately the next turn rather than having a, you know, I like I like the cinematic sweep of like, you know, charging units and fleeing units, kind of the, the battle line disintegrating and, a, you know, a cavalry unit chasing off after a fleeing infantry unit. But the... The, the gamic result is that you have a turn of turning round and then another round of moving back into the combat. And, it, and it's cool sort of cinematically, but from a game point of view, like it just adds another 35 minutes to the game that maybe didn't need to be there. Yeah, right. Plus, how many times have we been playing fantasy and you 
you have a unit and you're like, oh, cool, I'm going to charge. And then they run away and then you end up kind of stuck. And then you, okay, well, I'll get charged halfway there because it's failed charge. And then I'll do it again and they'll do it again. And you just spend an hour of the game playing Chasey around the battlefield <laughs> and you just go, I just want to fight. Can we just fight? I mean, let, let's have some fun. And what I really like about this game from what I've seen, and I did push a couple things around using the quick start rules, it it feels really good if you have played a lot of rank and flank games. And as you say, you want something that allows you to push armies together and have those satisfying combats. There is finesse to this, but it's not one of those games where you're going to be measuring millimeters to say, oh, you're out. That isn't how this works. It's let's get in. Let's fight some battles. Let's have some fun. And let's kill some stuff on the way. And that is my style of fantasy game. Right. And, you know, to a degree, like with any with any war game, there's a degree to which, like, the way that you write the rules, the way that you present the rules um, communicates an attitude and a sort of expected, almost like an expected social contract where, like, you know, Gaslands, I tried quite hard to communicate, like, there isn't a right way to play this game, but the way that I encourage you to play the game is, you know, insert rule of carnage and insert the other kind of the, the ways that I communicate the rules. And so I'm trying to do the same thing with Hobgoblin, which is not to say like, this is a goofy game where you don't, you know, play sensibly and you ignore all the measurements, but it's like, right, this is right. a rank and flank game that cares about games finishing fast and everyone dying and there being fun and interesting moments but everything's everything's inexorably rolling quickly towards doom and destruction you know don't get too don't get too hung up on those details is kind of how it's trying to insinuate itself let's jump in because yeah i realize we haven't quite gotten into the universe yet and i do want to talk about all the unit types and i want to talk about some of the rules and i want to talk about the mechanics but i think we would be doing the game a disservice if we didn't start talking about the underworld realm where this game is fought um, yeah. Mike, where did you come up with this idea? Because it's very innovative and interesting. Uh, well, thank you. Um, so uh, the so Hobgoblin started, you know, many years ago as a generic like rank and flank game because I had a bunch of armies and I wanted to play them. But as I sort of rolled towards making this into a thing, I was like, no, wait a minute, this is a fantasy game. I get to write a fantasy world. Of course, I'm going to do that. So mm -hmm. Hobgoblin takes place in the fantasy realm of Rotvalden, uh, which is a subterranean dungeon world uh, wherein I imagine, and you know, to a degree, some of this is still shrouded in mystery slash Mike doesn't need to have decided yet. The, fro the, the surface of this world is a frozen wasteland. It's an ice world. You know, it's probably filled with, you know, hideous creatures and spirits and undead monstrosities. And so there are tunnels um, into which the, the fantasy peoples of this world sort of delved. And as they delved deeper and deeper and created more and more kind of networks of tunnels, the ice encroached. And so, you know, the the the... The upper, I call it the Istwood, Ist being up and uh, um, L being down. The Istwood caverns are sort of increasingly frozen and the, the ice is, is, is descending. And so that pushed the people down and further down. And if you go to the Kickstarter page, you'll see a world map. Uh, this was sort of the first inspiration. I was like, what if the world map is not a, 
a plan map of you know a country, but it's instead a slice, like I've taken a slice through the apple of the earth and I've pulled that slice out and that's the vertical map that you see with the spidery sort of root-like um, tunnels uh, going down. And I, I, uh, I asked Google like, how deep is the crust of the earth? And that gave me whatever it was like, is it 1500 or 2000 or 2500 miles to play with so it's like okay let's go big let's say you know this essentially is a it's like a dying planet where uh the core is still hot and the outside is cold and you know the rest of it is is a is a is a ball that is uh you know, webbed through with these tunnels. And so the map that I give you is one slice of it, but like there's, you know, many, many other slices, you know, there's 360 at least maps, probably more that you could draw that would be completely different and you could you could create your world. Um, but as you get slower, as you get lower down in this, uh, in this uh, subterranean world, you get to the sort of temperate zones of the Stenhal with all of its copper dwarfs and, uh, and, and, and elves and all the other things. And then it starts to get warmer and more fertile and you get these sort of mushroom jungles. And then it gets to the deep heart uh, where the infernal dwarfs live, the Eld, uh, the Eldhal, where um, there was at some point a, uh, a wall built to contain, you know, which we could kind of see as like the, the sort of magma layer where the fire demons, but someone's built built a wall and then someone else came and punctured a hole in that wall and let let uh, let loose all the fire demons. And now it's the infernal dwarfs and the fire demons sort of in cahoots slashing in, um, in constant struggle. Uh, so it, what this gives me is, you know, just a sort of crazy and unique setting, both to fit in all the fantasy tropes that I want people to be able to play and explore, but with enough space for them to do kind of whatever they want, because it's it's not it's not this it's not even a it's not a, a world map. It's like an entire you know it's a it's an entire volume of things. So you where this started to work for me was imagining like okay, this is now big enough to have an entire underground sea or ocean in it. It can have monstrous caverns, entire you know entire sort of cities can fit inside a, can get swallowed inside a cavern and then connected to 17 other of those caverns and you know there can be waterfalls that go for 300 miles through the you know through a uh, through a, a shaft in the earth or whatever like just loads of crazy visuals started to come out to me and so that's what um yeah i got really excited about it and it's cool because i'm as you speak i'm going through the the terrain that i own going yep that works for this. Yep. That works for that. Yep. That works for that. My winter table, my desert tables, um, my more fantasy trilogy tables, all of them work. So this you is a setting that you allows you to, as you said, this is a miniature agnostic game, but it sounds like it's also a terrain agnostic game because for some games that are miniature agnostic, you go, Ooh, yeah, I got miniatures for that. But then you go, Ooh, I don't actually have terrain to play it on, but for this I do, which is fantastic. And so the other thing with designing a, a setting for a specifically for a fantasy battle game is I wanted to answer the obvious question, which is why is everyone fighting? And then mm. the second question after that, which is how come there are so many armies? <laughs> what, what, and why could I keep having battles? Um, so, <clears throat> so the kind of, so I've explained the sort of background setting, like the core conceit um, that I have sort of landed on is that as the as these cavern as these tunnels were growing and people were delving deeper and deeper in various places across this realm, 
um, people accidentally discovered or began to punch, punch through into this sort of shadow set of tunnels that were more ancient. Um, and that these uh, elder roots uh, that had been carved out by some other, you know, prehistorical civilization contained within them these strange artifacts of power that I call the cursed artifacts. And in my mind, what happens with each of these is that, you know, some, some like adventurer or rogue or lost, you know, final, you know, warrior of a unit finds one of these things mm -hmm. and it becomes a conduit to some powerful being or sorcerer from the elder times. And so they, as the bearer of these cursed artifacts, get immediately these incredible powers to manifest um, vast armies. And that might be through, you know, like mud amancy and they can bring golems up from the ground, or it might be that they can resurrect the dead, or it might be that they can create spirits or whatever. And that their great power comes with this like draining effect where it's a sort of devil's bargain, where the more they use this ability to manifest and uh, armies and, 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 and take power, the closer the sort of ancient uh, beast gets to like you know consuming their life force maybe reincarnating into them possessing them etc so these characters with the cursed artifacts become known as the haunted and in my imaginations and the way that I'm trying to approach um, the more narrative campaign elements is that you know you you are represented by one of these haunted generals and you can continue to manifest these armies but every manifestation of a or replenishment of your army you know corrupts you further uh, down your path to um to desolation you know again with fantasy like no ideas are new but you've got to take yeah, them exactly. and create the cocktail that feels right and fun to you to tell stories about so you know i've got i've got fire and ice i've got you know cursed artifacts that are that are corrupting people like none of these things are you know surprising and new but i think you know i hope that the way that the story unfolds uh, and that there is a fair amount of narrative fiction in the rule book, which is kind of a fun new uh, challenge that I've I've given myself with this game. Like I'm hoping it, it kind of brings it to life and gives people something to get their teeth in as they're thinking about how to sort of slot their own model collections into either the game mechanics or, you know, or, or sort of living in the world uh, as part of their gaming. Now, I do want to ask you about the art and how the book is put together, because from what I've seen, everything is gorgeous. But we're going to come to that in a second. Mm. Let's talk a little bit more about the campaign system. So there is a campaign system that you can. This isn't just a one and done quick battle game. You can progress armies over time as you play this. Well, so that's the thing about Kickstarter is that I've, I've pretty much finished the game, but there's a couple of little bits that I'm not certain i'm completely happy with and mm -hmm. the campaign system is one of them because um if you've heard me talk on uh, rule of carnage like mm -hmm. i find campaign systems both endlessly fascinating and and incredibly frustrating both as a designer mm -hmm. as, a, as a player um but i had a good experience with the billion sons campaign system insofar as the campaign gave you a sort of you know, when you start a video game and you can start like story mode or kind of one-off mode and with story mode, you know, in like a Metrovania game or whatever, like you start with, with a little and you build your tools over time. I quite liked the way that that worked out in A Billion Suns um, insofar as A Billion Suns gives you a set of unit types, ship classes that you can choose from. And the same is true in Hobgoblin. So here in Hobgoblin, um, there'll be a similar kind of progression system where you can um, start with a small number of options and build your options over time. And so that's, it's less about 
uh, it's less about figuring out who's the winner over a number of games, but it's more that kind of escalation sort of, you know, it gives you hooks to hang your hobby on, hooks to hang your kind of like local gaming community kind of, you know, that kind of stuff where I can challenge myself to start with two or three unit types and then build out from there. So with the campaign system, like there'll be that plus, you know, uh, the idea of the corrupting, uh, the corrupted general. And so the more power I get, the more corruption I get. And that's, I think, part of um i i'm fascinated by like when do campaigns end because rarely they do they just sort of putter out and so uh that that corruption mechanic will uh will provide that sort of uh acceleration to a to a sort of conclusion sure. one of the things again that i really like about this game is that you sort of you're kind of open about the play area it's not played on a six by four specifically what the quick start rules say is that you need at least a three by four table. Um, but then you roll, you divide it in half and you start deploying your armies 16 inches apart. So what that basically means is you can play on almost any size table as long as you're starting with a three by four to start with. Yeah, this is kind of a, <laughs> this is kind of a manifesto of mine, which is, um, you can you can mark everyone marks deployment zones out by measuring from the edge of the table in mm -hmm. and if you simply don't do that and invert it and measure from the center of the table outwards suddenly it doesn't matter what size your table is and it True. doesn't matter for gaslands and it doesn't matter for a billion suns and in exactly the same way it doesn't matter for hobgoblin and the reason is like i'm quite lucky i have enough space to have a six by four gaming table um, but not everyone does. And I've played a ton of miniature games around at friend's house, but we just play on the kitchen table and it's an annoying, awkward shape or it's too small or it's, you know, it's too long or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you have to make all these compromises and I just get frustrated. It's like, you don't have to make compromises. Just measure from the center of the table. Everything is fine. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's all that is. And the oh. other thing I guess is that armies start 16 inches apart because, um, uh, I just love getting straight into it. And, um, you know, there are, there are in Gaslands, in A Billion Suns, and now in a Hob in Hobgoblin, like you kind of, it's like a cold open. You cut right to the action. Like there's not a sort of turn of um, eyeballing and sort of high noon sort of sweat dripping down your face, eyeballing. Um, you know, although that can be nice in a rank and flank game where you're kind of, you know, you're doing a little bit of feint with your deployment and a little bit of fiddling about in turn one. But if, like, I don't know if you're like me, like most of your rank and flank turn ones have been pushing everything up, let's just, mm -hmm. let's just push it up already. Let's just start there. <laughs> Amen. I could not agree more. And I was so glad to see that with this. It's fantastic. Well, let's, let's well, it's, talk it's, it's again to that same principle of like, if we're going to fit a big army game into 90 minutes, like just, just like, that's just fats, just cut it off. We'll save ourselves at least 15, 20 minutes. Well, that literally was one of my questions later about how long is a game of Hobgoblin? Uh, I mean, I, we routinely finish in, you know, an hour 20 and we tend to play with uh, what in Hobgoblin is like 4,000, 5,000 points, which is if you lay it down on the table, like a decent, chunky, um, you know, looking fantasy army. So it... it doesn't it doesn't scale exponentially beyond that because as with many things like a lot of the time in a war game is in the handover points 
And so adding another one or two units doesn't like doesn't linearly increase the length of the game. Um, so you can play really quite big games, definitely like in under two hours. Um, and once you've got your your um, once you've got the system under your belt, and particularly once you've kind of begun to memorize or become familiar with the to hit table, mm -hmm. it, it's very quick to resolve combats. And combats, of course, are you know one of the big slowdown points in in many other systems. Um, mm -hmm. And so, in a way, you can never really speed up the movement phase because that's where you know you're physically moving objects. You're having to think carefully about the positioning. So I've not tried, you know, tried to keep that as elegant as possible, but not try to strip too much out of there. But the combat phase, the magic phase, like all of these are places where, you know, by by reducing the number of dice rolls or reducing um the number of handovers, like you can, you can, you can get the games that are really big to still fit in in 90 minutes. And that's that's what I want as a, you know, as a dad with limited gaming time and who still wants to push massive armies around. Now, let's talk about some of the variety of units here, because I know that that was one of my first questions when I looked at this. Um, just going off of a basic list, we have light infantry, ranged infantry, heavy infantry, monstrous infantry, light cavalry, heavy cavalry, chariots, war wagons, monsters, beasts, and artillery. Now, each one of those has a profile. Each one of those has a point cost, and each one of those has keywords. However, as you start digging into the race specific, I know that, for example, dwarves are slow and certain dwarves are elite. None of those keywords appear on the list I'm looking at. So I know that as you are playing different armies, the race or the makeup of the units can affect the profiles of each one of those units. So there's a lot of differentiation between units on the tabletops once you start actually putting things down. Is that correct? Right. So yeah, let, let me get into this because because uh, because I've not been able to show you the full rules yet. Like it, it goes much further than that, actually. Oh, wow. So um, I love monster miniatures. I love buying them. I love building them. I love painting them. I mostly have bad times putting monster miniatures on the table, particularly in fantasy games, because um, in... Uh, in the endless quest to create both variety and balance, um, it's fairly common to find models that you love, which just stink in the context of the game that they've been designed for. Yes. And in a way, you want to put them on the table, but you're sort of a goon for doing so. And you, so you kind of feel like you're penalized or you're handicapping yourself. But it's that's the model you want. And you love the paint job that you did. And you didn't really know whether it was any good until you put it on the table. And then you found out that it stunk. And it's not good. So... One of my design principles for Hobgoblin was that anything I choose to paint should be as viable as anything else. And it's kind of an impossible statement, but here's how I approached it. So the first answer to this, anything I choose to paint is viable, is that we have generic unit types, as you've just described. So a unit of goblins, a unit of dwarfs, you know, a unit of halberdiers, they're all light infantry. And whether or not there's 30 goblins or 10 dwarfs or 20 halberdmen, like, I don't care. As long as your, your rectangle is within the minimum and maximum unit dimensions, like, you go for your life. You decide how many goblins represents a, a unit with 10 courage. And then how you customize a unit and therefore how you kind of create your army and your faction is that you can add keywords. You can add strengths. You can add any number of strengths. And these strengths are 
Uh, there's a big old list of them that in you can see in the quick start rules you've got you know devastating charge or merciless or nimble and these will bring in some capability and then you can have up to two weaknesses and there's a couple of the weaknesses are given in the quick start rules like cursed or fragile but there are other weaknesses as well uh, in the full rules um, and you can add a couple of weaknesses they decrease the cost of the unit and you can add as many strengths as you want and that increases the cost of the unit and so basically what i'm doing is i'm saying look you be the you be the game designer. You build the army you want, and I'll I'll my contract is I'll give you uh, enough balance and sort of internal kind of um, sensibleness within those options that I pretty much guarantee you can't break the game and you can't aggravate your opponent. But what you can do is say, well, these monstrous inf these these are trolls. Okay, so I want monstrous infantry. But I also want them to be, you know, um, self-destructive, but I want them to be terrifying. And I'll add those things in and I can decide what my trolls uh, are like. And you can make a different determination about what your what your unit of troll miniatures is going to have. Um, and as long as we've both got an army list in front of us, we can share that. Then, you know, that's the way that the game basically says, you know, if you want to paint a dragon model or if you want to paint, you know, a massive unit of uh, rat people like tell your opponent the rules that you've given them and then play the game that you want to play and have that model just be, you know, just be as, as viable as any, as anything else. And of course, because of the range of keywords, like there's an enormous amount of variability in the armies that you can build. And to a degree, like the downside is that there's no wild spikes of power or surprise because everyone's got access to the same stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with the range of options, uh, being what they are, there's a lot of kind of viable different ways of building an army, whether it's fast or tough or, you know, hard hitting. And then beyond this army list system, which I won't go into too much, but you've got two further kind of elements, which is, you know, the wizards that you buy and the spells that you choose that provides a really interesting kind of pivot to sort of hang some 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 synergies off and some some tactics that you want to use. And then deeper in the rule books, not in the in the quick start rules is is the actual cursed artifacts and they're like your general which you get for free can have one of these cursed artifacts that gives them a little special rule and so that that's then a you know that's then a special rule that you can begin to build your army and and and, and both from a flavor point of view and from a sort of rules synergy point of view so that's that's how army building works uh, you say let's play four thousand points i buy some units i upgrade them or downgrade them with my keywords and we get to build whatever army we want you blind fishmen you know uh you know pe uh, lizard men who live in temples you know uh, infernal dwarfs like whatever you want to do you you build it so you're telling me that my old floating eyeball army is a, is a thing in this game Oh, yes. Those guys, they live in a cavern somewhere. They have, you know, deep magical powers, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure my friends here can't wait for me to put them back on the tabletop. <laughs> well, let's, let's <laughs> and so the way that we came up with the unit types is like, you know, I've got I got dozens of armies and so have my friends. Like, we just tried to build as many armies as we could from the miniatures we want. The war wagon actually was the last unit type to get added. And that was just because, you know, we played with enough times where we, we fudged a chariot or a monster unit type for this thing that didn't really feel like a chariot or a monster. We were like, you know what? We just need a war wagon in the middle here. And that was the last piece of the puzzle to be like, yeah, pretty much every miniature that we own now has like a really nice, tidy, generic expression in this set of units. I love it. I love it. 
Um, well, let's talk about a turn in this game, uh, or in this case, should I say battle rounds? Each turn is broken down into six parts. We have the initiative phase, we have the magic phase, the shooting phase, the movement phase, the combat phase, and my favorite, the doom phase. Doom um, phase. Can you talk us through how Hobgoblin basically plays out over the course of a turn? You don't have to get super bogged down in it, but just so people get an understanding of how things play, because it is a little different than some of the rank and flank games that they may have played before. Yeah, so I guess I'll just pick out some of the highlights in each of the things. So initiative phase, super simple. Uh, the person who doesn't have the first player token gets to roll a dice to see if they seize the initiative. And the dice roll is that they need to roll over the current turn number. So the, the probability of the, of the swing changes throughout the game. And then you get a fortune card. And these fortune cards are kind of random events slash buffs slash debuffs that you can play at the point where the card is uh, and that's like, for me, that's one of the crucial elements of like having a little card, having a little hand of cards and being like, oh, I've got this thing that's going to, you know, save this unit, but I'm not sure which one to do it. And I need to make sure I don't, you know, uh, give my, give my tip my hand. Um, and then the, uh, the magic phase, you know, you've got a couple of wizards maybe in your, in your army, they've each chosen uh, during army building a school of magic. School of magic gives you three spells to choose from. And you get <clears throat> a couple of, uh, mana tokens at the beginning of the magic phase, one for every thousand points in your army, one for every wizard that's still on the table. And then you simply pay those tokens to cast the spells. So there's no there's no randomness in the spells. Uh, this is something that I picked, that I kind of developed from. Uh, one of the games I put in Blaster was uh, Mystic Skies. And Mystic Skies was a game about dueling wizards. And one of the mm -hmm. core principles there was like, you're a wizard, you can do magic. Like that's your thing. That's your whole thing is being cool at doing magic. And the same is true in Hobgoblin. Like, Wizards don't fluff their spells. Like that's the reason they're there. So the choice is how do I spend the resources on the spells and where do I cast them and what's a smart decision rather than making it a smart decision and then having a you know random casting roll um, uh, fail or blow you up. <clears throat> and magic's really there to like fundamentally change the, the shape of the game. So you've got a lot of generic unit types, you know roughly what they do, but then magic kind of is the place that you you radically shift the 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 shape of the game or the, the the specifics of what a unit can achieve so does that mean you can so because i haven't seen the magic phase in action yet does that mean mm. you can buff or debuff units so to speak or that they can be destructive or they can move things around none of the above all of the above what is what is the effect of magic on this game yeah so so it's a, it's a good question um i think and i can't recall i think there might be one or two direct damage spells left but direct damage was one of those things that kind of got optimized out because what's use what's interesting about magic is changing the abilities uh, of the units and changing how the situations that were going to be predictable are now unpredictable just pointing and clicking and zapping some wounds onto a onto a thing like it's not really that interesting use of magic. Um, yeah. So if there are any direct damage spells, they're, they're still getting slightly a side eye from me and they might they might evaporate before we, we finish. But yeah, like for example, you know, a classic spell that I always love using is the spell that gives a unit swift plus six and flying. And so that gives them, you know, suddenly a, a ton of maneuverability, um, but flying itself is a, is a keyword that, you can either fly or you can go into combat. Uh, you can't do both. And so you've got, with swift and flying, you've got a couple of options immediately. And this like unit of you know powerful dwarfs that are really slow suddenly became like an interesting threat that's got um, more places it can go. So that's for me, like that's when magic is interesting.
Yeah, so shooting and then later in the turn, uh, the combat phase, they both resolve in the same way, which is um, I get some dice. It's five dice when I'm shooting. It's 10 dice when I'm attacking in combat. And I these are just D6. And I'm going to throw the, the number that's on the target number chart. So it depends. Like if I'm light infantry and you're um, heavy infantry, then I'm going to roll some fives to hit you. And you know maybe my strengths or your strengths or weaknesses can affect that dice number. Um, but uh, I won't go into it too much, but like, oh my goodness, shooting in all games is really hard from a game's design perspective because ultimately it's boring. And um, in particular, in a fantasy rank, in a rank of like fantasy game, like there's a real feels bad moment where, you know, a cannon shoots that, that monster that you just painted off the table and it doesn't get to do its thing. And so I spent a lot of time working backwards and forwards on, on really balancing shooting about which units can suffer, you know, significant damage from, from um, shooting, which units have a, a sort of level of inbuilt immunity to it, can, how much damage can shooting do in general, and, you know, not to go into it too much, but, like, I think the shooting phase is, like, slightly surprising in that quite often it won't do as much as you expect, but it will it will try and always do a little something, but it's about softening up. And then the question of, well, is a shooting army in Hobgoblin, is an all-shooting army in Hobgoblin viable? It's probably the least viable army, but if that's the if that's the compromise, like that's a compromise I'm happy to make, having played against dwarf gun lines. Mm-hmm. Having had a Keeper of Secrets catch a rock from a stone thrower uh, in the first turn of literally, I believe it was four games in a row, and every single time it happened, we went, okay, we'll re-rack and we'll try this again. Even standing behind a building behind a set of woods, I still caught that giant rock in the face and went, well, I guess I'm just not going to win this game. So shooting's there to like soften units up and make decision-making a little bit more interesting because now there's a bit more variability in like, well, okay, this unit's damaged, this one isn't, now I can make some decisions. But actually taking units off, like for me, like if you want to shoot units off, like go play a different kind of game because I just don't think that's what... For me, playing a rank and blank fantasy game is that's not where the fun is. So anyway, that's the shooting phase. Minor rant. For those wondering, for example, if you have heavy cavalry running into light infantry, they would need threes. Um, as you say, in hand-to-hand combat, you roll 10 dice. And then you would then keep track of the casualties that you do into the unit. And then that becomes important when comparing... Um, that that gives you doom tokens that if you break or you go over the unit's courage value at the end of the phase, then bad things happen. Yeah, that's right. So every unit starts with 10 courage. Mm-hmm. You know, keywords can affect that. Spells can affect that. Um, being outflanked can affect that courage value. Um, and then every time I take a hit, whether it's shooting or combat, I get a doom token. And so assuming nothing else has changed, like when I get two, 10 doom tokens, that's the same as my courage. And so then I am going to get removed in the doom phase. Um, and I guess we'll come back to the movement phase, but like the, in the doom phase, like all of the units survive until the end of the turn. And that's something that I kind of nicked from a couple of other games. I think um, uh, Warhammer 40,000 Apocalypse does this really nicely, the most recent mm-hmm. version of, the, of that. And it they put it in for exactly the same reason, which is, I get to play with all of my toys for the whole turn. And then at the end of the turn, we kind of mop up and find out who's um, who's 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 panicking, who's um, who's doomed. And then if something has uh, 
got doom tokens up to its courage or over and gets taken off the table, then you get a consolation prize. And your consolation prize for taking a unit off the table is you get two mana tokens or a fortune card. So as you're losing units, I'm trying to give you like some more options to sort of have, you, you know, the unit got taken away. That's a big set of interesting decisions in the game. So let's try and give something back to both accelerate the game because now you've got more resources to do cool stuff, but also to keep decision making flowing so that I'm not just like, oh, I've only got a couple of units and there's nothing really to decide. Exactly. And it also means that I don't have to re-rack 200 Skaven models on back onto movement trays between games. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, the Doom token mechanic is 100% like, I I want units to just be these blobs that, you know, they're, they're completely consistent and you can, they're basically the models. So when you look at a rank and flank army in Hobgoblin, you know, you've probably got six, eight, ten units. So it's kind of like playing with 10 models in my mind. Like, I think that that's about right for a, for an army game anyway. It's just that, like, when you're dealing with un-movement trade, you know, units, then you've got a lot more individual models to move. But ultimately, you know, pretty much any war game you play will will end up being about six, eight, 10, 12 units. You have mentioned fortune cards several times during this mm. conversation. So what are fortune cards and how do they play a part in the game? Yeah, so that's a deck of custom cards, uh, which you get when you um, when you back us on Kickstarter um, and will be available uh, through retail. Um, they are you know, like... You could play the game without fortune cards, but it's way it's way less it's way less enjoyable uh, without them because I what they are is a shared deck. You know, we draw five at the beginning of the game, and we've got them in front of us, and they are providing surprises and sort of tricks and and feints that we can use to change the shape of the battle. And so, you know, a, a lot of what I'm trying to do with the you know generic units and you know very fast play rules like. Without additional stuff, it could feel quite repetitive or, you know, just without without sort of, you know, crunch and flavor. And so the fortune cards are a lovely place to put in, you know, just, you know, just some gamesmanship and some and some surprises and some some, you know, some poker faces and some and some, you know, psyching each other out. So you'll get those fortune cards, you get you know five at the beginning of the, turn, uh, the game, one every turn, one if you choose to when a, a unit gets squashed. And, you know, you can just throw those cards down at the point that they're relevant. So some cards will say, you know, at the start of the combat phase, play this to get elite. And I can stack those up if I've got a hand of really good cards. I can absolutely, you know, stack them all on a single unit. And that little unit of goblins can suddenly just be like an absolute terror for one round. And I can surprise you with that and, and change the shape of the game. And, and we can have a chuckle about that. All right. Well, let's get back to movement. By the way, those fortune cards, I believe, are something like $12 on the Kickstarter. I know because I backed it and I mm -hmm. did get the fortune cards. I'm so glad I did. Um, but let's talk about the movement phase because the movement phase for this game, just like a lot of the other components of Hobgoblin, is carefully considered to be fast and effective and to get you where you need to be to cause that damage quickly. Yeah, so I won't go too much into detail, but every unit's got a speed value, which mm -hmm. is like 8, 10, 12. And for each one of those speed value, you get a, a movement point. So I might have eight movement points. And then there's a set of maneuvers that you can do. So you can advance an inch for a movement point. You can wheel by sort of scooting one corner uh, forward an inch whilst holding the other corner down. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, and you can reform, spin on the spot essentially for the cost of five movement points, and you can shuffle left and right uh, for half an inch for a movement point uh, or backwards. And in some of those cases, like reform and shuffling backwards and wheeling backwards, you get a, um, a weakness called uh, disordered as a result of doing that maneuver. Mm-hmm. And that means that you can't end in combat. So some movement you can end in combat, certain kinds of movement you can't. So you can advance forward, you can wheel forward, you can sort of side smash into people, but you can't back up into them, you can't reform and then sort of charge off into a unit that was standing behind you. Um, And that's basically it for movement. And then in terms of like, there's there's no like explicit charging, you just, you know, if you were unengaged and you used one of the permitted movements, you can get into combat. And also there's not a lot of like, lining up units and sort of closing the door i spend a lot of time and sort of tears trying to get trying to figure out what i wanted how tidy a battle line i wanted and how much flexibility and freedom i wanted and in the end like what hobgoblin allows you to do is sort of careen into units and you know clip them on a corner you you can if you still got movement points choose to tidy up that battle line or you can sort of have a little hanging thing or you can charge two units if they're on a corner together by sort of smashing two corners into them so what i've tried to do is sort of say like look as long as the units are in contact and you guys are happy with how this works out like they're in combat um, and trying to avoid some of that finicky closing the door rules not that there's anything wrong with those rules, but like I'm kind of obsessed with with cleanliness in rules. And once you start to try and write them in an accurate, kind of always reliably executable way, they can get pretty messy. So battle lines in Hobgoblin are kind of kind of raggedy by design, because what, as I said before, happens then is that units can still shuffle around and kind of sort of lap around each other in um once they're in combat so although units tend to die fairly quickly for the turn or three that they're in combat like there's still flexibility and and fluidity um which i which i really like just because it keeps it keeps it keeps there still being decisions to be made in the movement phase you know perhaps less significant decisions but there's still a choice to be made in the movement phase even if your unit is in melee one of the things that I noticed right off the bat, and I'm sure everyone will when they look at Hobgoblin on Kickstarter, is the title of the game is very metal. And uh, <laughs> looking at you on this call, and I know this is an audio podcast, folks, just imagine uh, a, a Dave Mustaine level of hair from early Megadeth slash Metallica. I mean that as a compliment. Um, <laughs> if we... Combine those two elements to quote um, my friend Seamus, who wanted to know what metal bands you've been listening to. Um, I'm getting a very metal feel from you here. And I'm I'm and part of that fuels into this epic fantasy feel for me for Hobgoblin, almost like Man of War is playing in the background, and I'm imagining this. But is this intentional or is this just you know life choices that are coming together in a wonderful way? Yeah, I mean, look, a hundred percent. Uh you know, like like many music fans, I've got lots of uh, you know places that I will go emotionally with music. But like uh, when uh, the Lord of the Rings movies came out originally, like in my mind, the music that plays over the top of that is Italian fantasy speed metal band Rhapsody. And like 
like that's that's how fantasy works in my mind it's like you know galloping beats and you know soaring vocals and that's the sort of like you know i i grew i grew up with i grew up with uh with that sort of kind of i don't know love of you know that that level of like that kind of overblown metal being something that i adored and that you know fueled you know it it interlocked into my sci-fi and fantasy fiction love mm -hmm. and you know it it was, you know, no secret that that uh, GW was uh, a bunch of, you know, sweaty metalheads as well. Um, they have their own metal label for crying out loud. Yeah, and, exactly. And Bolt I think Bolt Thrower is still going, aren't they? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so, you know, as part of the aesthetic that we're going for, uh, and Greg Horton, uh, who's doing the layout and graphic design, is, uh, you know, he's a metal guitarist as well and a big proponent of a lot of what we're doing here. But like, you know, this is intended to be both, uh, you know, an old school kind of feeling thing, you know, a bit like, you know, there's that there's that big movement in 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 uh, role playing games about kind of bringing back, bringing back what was so grognardian and beloved um, from the 80s. And I think that, you know, there's to, to a degree, there's a there's a real strain of, of that same nostalgia and love in what I'm trying to do with Hobgoblin. Uh, but you know we're trying to amp it up, and we're trying to keep it. You know, you know, there's no, there's also no secret looking at it that we're you know, we're very inspired by you know some of the more artistic um, movements in uh, in tabletop, uh, particularly tabletop miniature games design and role playing design. Like obviously, you know, obviously we adore the Ink Twenty Eight kind of vibe. We adore uh, Merkborg. Like all of that stuff is wonderful um, because it's taking what you know we've grown up with this thing that's got a very strong aesthetic and now it's a fresh kind of it's new artists bringing a fresh aesthetic to um to kind of bring their own voices to it and that's the same thing that we wanted to do and why i was so delighted when greg brought on um the the, the main artist on the project which is crom uh and his style oh my god so uh unique and and fantastic he's a He's an illustrator who predominantly works on graphic novels. And so the sort of the fluid sketchy style, like it's very grim and gritty, but it's also quite like playful and fast. And I don't know, just super, super suits everything that we were going for. Um, and that's, I think part of why, you know, I'm I'm really proud and excited because I'm, you know, I'm, you can hear, like I'm super passionate about the games design elements mm -hmm. and not, I'm not um, I'm not super skilled in some of the other elements, like you know, like the layout and the creation of the branding and the and the illustration. But it's wonderful to be working with people who are as excited and passionate about that thing in order to try and bring something, breathe some life into something that has that coherence across it. Um, and that's cool because you know, there's only like three, four, five of us working on this thing. It's a super indie project. Like this is still you know me doing things in my evenings and, and my days off. Um, but I love it. Yeah, it looks and man, Crom's art suits what you've been describing to a T. Mm -hmm. Having seen it uh, across the Kickstarter pages, across the Facebook page, man, and with a name like Crom, I mean, you can't go wrong, right? <laughs> I mean, anyone who's a Conan fan knows exactly what I'm talking about there. Hi, Crom, Crom. Well, Crom laughs at the four wins at your four wins. I mean, That's if you had to, if you had to ask me to pick my favorite metal band right now, it is Conan from the UK. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Well, let's talk about the lack of a blue border to this game. This is not a blue mm. book. This is not on Osprey. This is something completely different, and it does have its roots in Blaster. Am I getting that right? 
Yeah, that's exactly exactly right. So, <laughs> so yeah, Blaster was the like. Uh, Mike takes tentative steps away from the uh, warm bosom of Osprey uh, <laughs> games who have been absolutely, you know, superb uh, as a sort of platform for me to get to uh, to get my first games out. And I've got a huge, um, uh, I don't know, just, yeah, like huge privilege to be able to be part of like their expanding uh, catalogue. But with Blaster, which we talked about before, like there was an opportunity to sort of hang out with other indie games designers and find out, Kind of their um, their take on things, and this opportunity um, through one of the gang, Sean Sutter, introduced us to uh, Greg Horton, who um, at the time was working as a full time uh, graphic designer in um, in the, in the ads world in an advertising agency, and he had this incredible passion for games, but also this real flair for laying out text and images in a way that made it feel really exciting, and you can see that through Blaster. Um, Offspray is many things, but one thing that they aren't is a, uh, a publisher that's looking for a strong visual voice. That's this weird metaphor, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like they produce really high quality products um, and the layout, for example, for um, uh, Gaslands Refueled is really nice, really clean, you know, a little bit of character, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have behind the scenes someone like Greg who's as passionate about layout as I am about games design. And so working with someone like Greg on Hobgoblin allows Hobgoblin to have like, you know, just that amped up voice. It allows us to be a lot more kind of, I don't know, just a lot more, have a lot more personality in it and be freer to do whatever we feel is the strongest thing for the product. Um, and that's not to say you couldn't do that in a larger publishing company. It's just that that's that's the way that it's that's the way that it's shook out. So when I when I was chatting to Greg, you know, we've been working on Blaster for a bit, and he was so excited by the experience that he decided to quit his job and just start a games company. He's like, "I'm doing it. I'm doing it." I was like, "Well, if you if you're doing it, like, I've got a thing. We should we should do a thing together because if anything, not, yeah. if anyone can do a good job of making Hobgoblin into the thing that I want it." I can kind of imagine it being not making it, you know, not making it feel generic and what's the word? Like I've said that there's a kind of old school feeling to it, but I want that old school feeling that's dripping in kind of greasy flavor, not in so far as like it's a photocopied, you know, yeah, you know, war games research group sort of. For for me looking at this, it looks it. It feels like the total package because, as you say, you are coming at it from one way is from making sure the rules are, you know, vigorous and that it it stands up and it's a rich, interesting, fun game. But then by having someone come and meet you sort of halfway and take that vision further um, by, you know, just even the layout, even the way that the corners of the pages look and the art marries into that, it really just comes together beautifully so yeah thanks Big fan. yeah no i'm su i'm super i'm super happy with the way that this is uh uh being realized it's cool and i think it's cool because this is this is this is the sort of like the blue book was cool i was for gaslands was cool i was so excited to get the game out there but i'm kind of like i'm kind of a, a bit of a visual guy anyway and i was you know never excited you know because i did all the i did all the photographs and stuff i was never quite excited by the way that it you know, it was laid out. It's quite generic. And then yeah. Refueled came out and I was so happy with that because I was like, yes, this is the sort yeah. of rule book that I want to put out. But mm -hmm. this is just like, 
the next level. It's like, yeah, okay, we're moving from we're moving from nicely laid out um, uh, nicely laid out rule book to like piece of serious like beloved creation. Let's talk Kickstarter because as we speak right now, the Kickstarter is live and it will be live for uh, another three or four weeks. Um, yeah, it's got I 20 because- days to go as, as of time of recording. As of time of recording. So it'll be probably 27 by the time I put this out. But I backed it last night. I got the, the deluxe nice cover and I got the fake cards so I, or fortune cards. So I'm very mm-hmm. excited about that. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how long the Kickstarter has. Um, and I know that there's, you know, it's, it's, there isn't a miniature line that comes with this. It's, as you say before, it is totally miniature agnostic. However, there are a few um, add-ons that you cannot add on to this. And are you envisioning any stretch goals here? What, what are your thoughts with this Kickstarter? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so, I mean, first off, like we funded already, we funded real funds and that's great. So uh, one that, you know, that just means it's definitely happening, people. So this is uh, this is not a, a theoretical project at this point. This is super exciting. This is also my first Kickstarter, so I'm experiencing the emotional roller coaster uh, fresh and for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, like in terms of the Kickstarter, like the reason we're doing this is that you know it's me, it's Greg. Like we're a small uh, setup. We don't have you know a bunch of capital to print the books, but we want this thing to be a glorious hardback. Rule book, the kind that we all want to game with, and we wanted a set of cards, both quick reference cards for the spells and the objectives, but also the the deck of fortune cards that's super important. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that's kind of the core of the of the campaign is get an amazing physical book made, have a awesome looking deluxe edition, so that I can have something that looks even cooler on my shelf, mm-hmm. um, and then have enough add-ons to be able to like have a nice game experience with the dice and something to track Doom and so forth. And then uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, Greg had gone off and commissioned a, a model for a character called Garuk. Mm-hmm. And he is the chap who sat sort of um, brooding on the front cover of the uh, of the game's uh, rule book. He's mm-hmm. uh, a hobgoblin uh, captain of the guard uh, in the city in which he's currently sat in this image. He's got this monstrous halberd and he's sat on a throne, which he's just taken from the king of this city because this guy is sort of, for me, the sort of iconic hobgoblin of the title. He, um, through connivance and, uh, and, and trickery and good fortune, takes a cursed artifact from an invading uh, sort of undead general that's uh, attacking this city. And he puts on the... He puts on this spiked crown that you see him wearing in the model, um, and it sort of gets uh, gets this incredible urge and takes uh, a bunch of skeletons that are now following him into the throne room of this of what is essentially his king, and destroys him and his his royal guard and takes the throne. And there on the front cover is sort of Garuk uh, realizing perhaps what he's done and maybe what is now fated for him to continue to do um uh yeah so uh it's quite it's quite cool so there is a there is a an stl miniature which um, i don't know whether we'll be offering um print versions of but um i'm excited uh to get my hands on but this is just this is essentially just a um a kickstarter kind of exclusive to get um to get the sort of character and flavor of the world across because what you'll see in the book is images from some of the best 
sort of 3D miniature designers that we love and have worked with. So you'll see miniatures from uh, Lost Kingdom, from Highland miniatures, from Bestarian miniatures, and um, uh, Crumbs is a third one. There's a fourth one as well that I've just slipped out of my mind. Oh, Asgard Rising. Mm -hmm. And each of, these, each of these like are indie designers of their own mostly run Patreons for uh, for 3D prints, but I, I buy all this stuff off Etsy from official uh, sellers. And mm -hmm. so like what I want to do is, is bring together all this enthusiasm from the rules with the artwork, with these, you know, incredibly characterful, like I don't know if you've looked at any of those ranges, but like those guys are doing really, really fun work. You know, in some cases, those are like video game concept artists who are doing this on their, on their, on their downtime. And so there's so much character and and sort of amazing work going on in that world that we kind of wanted to just say like look okay this is you know we're pushing forward we're moving into this next you know world of 3d printing like let's just highlight the amazing work that's going on there and then we don't have to have a miniature line of our own because like we're just helping as i've done with the friends of gasland we're just kind of helping co-promote other other like indie makers um whether those are games designers or miniatures designers or whatever like that's I think, as an as an indie designer myself. Like it's, I'm reliant on other people helping me out here. So you know, it's it's it's, it's a no brainer. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love everything you just said. I love that you are not only tackling this sort of in an indie style yourself, but you're helping, you know, spread the word about other great indie artists and designers out there as well. It's fantastic. Uh, Mike, I'm sorry, our time has sadly come to an end, but. As always, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on just to hear about Hobgoblin, especially knowing how long you've been working on this. I mean, your passion for this project is clearly evident, and I cannot wait to get it on the tabletop. Now that I have the quit start rules, I'm actually going to pull out my Skaven and my Warriors of Chaos and put it on a table in the next couple of weeks and have some fun. I cannot wait to properly uh, give my beloved rat men some uh, properly devious rules though uh, when the actual <laughs> book comes out. And um, one more time, when does the Kickstarter end so people know to book to, to book their place, their copy of it in the Kickstarter before that time? So the Kickstarter is running through till the 16th of May. Perfect. Well, guys, I hope that you will check it out. Go to get Kickstarter and look up Hobgoblin. I know we've said it about 100 times. Mike, as always, I, I mean, I'm such a fan of your work. I am looking forward to playing this. And um, hopefully, I mean, not hopefully, this will be coming out soon. I mean, you, as you said, we're, we are now 100% backed. This is 100% going to happen. And I am 100% going to want to have you back on when it ships live and we start playing games so we can talk shop because uh, I have a feeling I'm going to be playing some serious games of this. Nice. Yeah, I would, uh, of course, always be happy to come back. Um, yeah, keep up the good work with the podcast, man. I'm a huge fan. Oh, thanks, brother. It means a lot, especially since I've been enjoying yours. And guys, if you have any aspirations for game design or are just curious about how games are put together, if you have not checked out the podcast Rule of Carnage that Mike is one of the two hosts on, highly recommend it. I've been listening to it a lot and I've actually <laughs> listened to it clinically, like listened to it for fun and then went, oh, I should actually take notes and gone back and taken notes. It's <laughs> that good. So guys, check it out. Rule of Carnage. It's not only a, my favorite ruling in Gaslands and now in Hobgoblin, 
but it's also a fantastic podcast. Folks, if you have any feedback, either about this show or others, or there's other games that are coming out because there seems to be a lot at the moment, um, please do message the Cast Ice Facebook page. We always want to hear from you. Uh, but I believe it is that time that our buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Gone and that track behind.